Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we are doing a rundown of charity news stories from the past week or so. But first up, I do have to issue a quick correction for last week. Uh, when uh, discussing the um, the TV programme Staged, uh, which is run by David Tennant and another actor, uh, I called that other actor Martin Sheen, and I, of course, meant Michael. Uh, I know I was saying Michael in my head, um, <laughs> but yeah, it came out as Martin Sheen. Uh, and apologies to Mr Sheen and Mr Sheen for that. Um, and yeah, I blame the West Wing. I, I blame a, a West Wing obsession. Yeah, I've only ever seen the first half of the first season of The West Wing. Um, I It's one of those things that I probably just need to try again because the only thing that really sticks in my memory about it is a scene where they uh, spike Martin Sheen as the president and he goes around talking to everybody on a mad upper, not aware that he is currently ingesting some sort of stimulant. Um, so that's that's all I, I've retained about The West Wing. It is so wonderful. And yeah, I just I, I absolutely love it and could, could geek out for ages about it. But sadly, this is not The West Wing Weekly. Um, <laughs> So, real podcast, which I love. Um, so, yes. Let's do some news stuff, shall we? Let's do some news stuff. So, we should point out that we are currently recording this on the morning of Wednesday, the 26th of May, which means that anybody sensible is or currently watching Dominic Cummings testify uh, in front of the parliamentary committee. But if there is a huge story in the sector that breaks between now and Friday when the episode is released, that's why we haven't spoken about it. Particularly if Dominic Cummings says something about charity, that would be great, wouldn't it? That would be great. But yes, here's the first story to kick us off. Oh, is that some sort of clue? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, our first story is about how the footballer, Marcus Rashford, see what I did there, hey. um, has topped the Sunday Times giving list for the first time as a result of his campaign to raise money for the fight against food poverty. So uh, the Manchester United striker is the youngest person ever to top the list, which was published for the 20th time this weekend. Uh, The annual measure of philanthropy among the super-rich compares the sums donated to and raised for charity against the person's estimated wealth. Uh, So that's how they managed to rank them in order of their generosity. So Marcus Rashford is 23 uh, and his fortune stands at about £16 million. But his high-profile lobbying campaign to ensure that children eligible for free school meals were fed when schools were shut during lockdown raised an estimated £20 for the food poverty charity Fair Share. So that gave him a giving index of 125 because 20 million represented 125% of his net worth, putting him at the top of the list. So effectively, he generated 125% of his income for charity, which is, is really quite something. Lindsay Boswell, who's the chief executive of Fair Share, said Rashford's own experience of relying on free school meals to eat brings authenticity and compassion to his campaigning. And his status as a Premier League footballer means people and politicians sit up and take notice. So yeah, hats off to all round good egg Marcus Rashford. He's so lovely. And every time he's on screen when, you know, someone's watching TV around me or watching football around me, I'm like, oh, that's the charity guy. Yes, absolutely. I absolutely loved that feature that we covered um, about his work with Fair Share at the beginning of this year. So hats off all round good egg. Next up, the LGBTQ plus charity Stonewall took on the national newspapers this week, accusing them of taking part in threadbare attacks on its work. So taking to Twitter, the charity highlighted the fact that the Times, the Daily Mail and the Sunday Times ran five negative stories about Stonewall over the last weekend. The tweet, which included screenshots of the headlines of the articles in question, said, Are you OK, hun? I'm just checking because you are spending a lot of time talking about us. It's a bit creepy. I know it's a bit of a stereotype, but I am loving this bit of sass from Stonewall. Bang on, guys. 
it's different isn't it it's definitely it's a it's a different approach to social media management and quite unusual to see a charity going out there swinging and sort of taking on um big media titles yeah and in a very in a way that kind of is very social media literate right i mean that is a joke about how people talk on social media um and yeah it's it's only going to play well and I, I do think we're increasingly seeing charities realising they can stand up to criticisms in the press. Um, obviously, we had the um, the RNLI story a couple of years ago, which we covered in quite a lot of detail, um, where you know they kind of took a beating for um, checks notes saving children's lives in yeah. other countries, spending 2% of their income on saving children's lives in other countries. And um, the Mail and the Times kind of went for them. And rather than sort of apologise and say they were going to review the policy, they just went, yeah, it's what we do. Yeah. We're okay with that. It's not a problem. Um, and yeah, it's just a, it's just really, really impressive. And I, I do think we're seeing more of those. So yeah, more power to their elbow. Right. So in a longer statement, the charity said that it was deeply disturbing to see coordinated attacks on LGBTQ plus equality organisations and anyone trying to make their community more inclusive. And they said it was very important to shine a light on this when it's occurring. Stonewall added that in the last week alone, there had been five national newspaper stories making what they called threadbare attacks on our Diversity Champions programme, which helps 850 plus employers create an inclusive environment for their LGBTQ plus colleagues. The charity was referring to reports that the Equality and Human Rights Commission had pulled out of Stonewall's Diversity Champions programme, citing concerns about value for money. I did also see a comment on Twitter from the charity's head of media who had done a little bit of number crunching and worked out that as of the 144th day of 2021, The Times and The Sunday Times alone had published 223 stories about transgender people and trans issues. That's almost two articles a day. Very, very high numbers for something that relates to such a tiny community within our society. So Stonewall said... We are proud of all the progress we've been part of since we were set up in 1989. But if you look at some news outlets today, you'd think we were still in 1989, with the same narratives trying to drive fear and division in communities. The charity added that we stand for all LGBTQ people, our freedom, equity and potential. We will not be silenced. Not until all of us are free to be proud, free to be loved, free to be together, free to be who we are. Our work continues until the world we imagine is the world we live in. So definitely coming out swinging there. And I think it's a very, very important statement, very close to the charity's mission. Good to see them. Good to see them swinging. Absolutely. Um, like I say, really great to see charities standing up for themselves when they actually don't think they've done anything wrong. I think it's one thing if you kind of look at it and go, yeah, we shouldn't have been doing this practice. Um, but I think, you know, where it, it ties in with something you believe in. Yeah, go for it. And we've also seen uh, just today, in fact, the a front page story on the front page of the Telegraph about the National Trust chairman standing down because his tenure is ending mm. and doing quite a bit of reaching around that. So uh, it's 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 not isolated to just one charity. We're seeing it in a few places at the moment. Yes, that's very much being pitched by the Telegraph as a victory for people who join a history organisation and then don't want to talk about history. But there we go. Um so uh, next up, we've got uh, Click Sergeant. This was an interesting little one. Are they Click Sergeant? Well, they were. They were. So the charity formerly known as Click Sergeant um, has, uh, well, it plans to change its name to Young Lives Versus Cancer uh, as part of a refocus strategy announced today. So the Young Lives Versus Cancer has been part of Click Sergeant's branding since about 2016. You'll have seen it if you've seen anything to do with the charity. It's kind of their logo, actually. It's like a slogan that's incorporated into their logo. Um, which makes it really interesting as a name change because it actually means it's 
not going to cost them a lot of money to change their name. You know, normally rebranding does cost a certain amount of money and, and name changes, you know, you have to pay designers, you have to, you know, replace stuff. And what they're saying is like they're going to keep a lot of their merchandise, a lot of their stock, different things that have their name on. They're just going to gradually phase it out. So when merchandise or stock needs replacing, that's when they'll get the new branding in, but they're just going to run it down till then. And because it's already kind of got the new name on, um, they should be able to save money. So the only things they've actually had to spend any money on have been the uh, basically the website and the kind of digital accounting systems because you know they need to make sure that beneficiaries can still access grants and information and that supporters and donors and volunteers can you know still sign up and find them. So it's only cost them about eight thousand pounds, which is really not bad. Um, or that they estimate it'll cost about eight thousand pounds overall. Uh, and they did this. This was also really interesting. Um, so they did a survey and uh, so it's a survey of people not currently supported by the charity. Uh, and they found that adopting the name of Young, of Young Lives Versus Cancer would increase the number of people who understood what the charity did and the number who would donate or accept support from its services if needed. When asked to choose between the two names, respondents were more than three times more likely to donate to Young Lives Versus Cancer than to Click Sergeant, according to this research. I think it's so interesting that I, I it's it, charity branding and the ways that behaviours change, like the nudge behaviours that are involved in charity branding and, and how people respond to that. I find it fascinating. And the fact that, um, you know, sometimes these changes don't always go the right way. So obviously we had action on hearing loss rebranded to RNID and then rebranded back to action on hearing loss again, you know, after finding out that in fact... No, it was, it was the other way was around. Was it the other way around? Oh. It was the other way around, which is really <laughs> interesting because... I don't even know. <laughs> no, but that's really interesting because, like, yeah, the, the Young Lives versus Cancer makes it so much clearer what Click Sergeant does. Right. But, yeah, RNID, they, they kind of, you know, they moved to this kind of, this sort of... You know, you imagine in the focus groups that this was kind of this very forward-thinking, we're doing something about it, and it's clear what we're taking action, and it's clear what we're taking action on, it's hearing loss. That is really interesting as well that obviously I started working in the sector when Action on Hearing Loss was the charity. Clearly, I have just embedded in my brain that Action on Hearing Loss was the original name and it's gone both ways because I'd never heard of RNID before I actually started working for Third Sector. Um, so I, yeah, it, it, it's it's so interesting the way that people respond to brands in different ways. And, and if you look at our charity brand index, um, you'll often see that after name changes, um, brands will go up or down in the index. And a lot of the time that is linked to the decisions to make those changes. So I'm really, really interested to see how um, this change does impact young lives versus cancer. And I mean, you would be an outlier, I think, there with the, the RNID one, because, you know, that change to action on hearing loss happened about 10 years ago and they still, before they changed, they still had the bottom of their emails like, oh, action on hearing loss, formerly RNID, mm. um, which is, is, you know, it makes no sense about, you know, 10 years after you've made the change if the change had been embedded. So yeah, and and with Young Lives versus Cancer, I think there was a, there was a bit of an emotional pull because they were formed by the merger of Sergeant Cancer Care for Children and Cancer and Leukemia in Childhood, so Click, that were kind of these big names and there's this kind of feeling of heritage and history to the charity. So I think it was a big decision to to move away from that in this branding. But, you know, I think Rachel Kirby Ryder, the charity's chief executive, sort of said, you know, that na- if that name is holding them back, they owe it to their service users to to try and get as much support for them as they can. And, and you know, that means not hanging on to a name that isn't doing them any favours. 
Next up, uh, Amnesty International UK is dealing with the most recent fallout surrounding claims of institutional racism at the organisation. So senior leaders at Amnesty have been under fire since the publication of an internal review in April that found incidents of overt racism at its international secretariat, which is a separate body from Amnesty International UK, but one that is also based in the UK. Kate Allen, who is the chief executive of AI UK, stepped down from her position last week, which is earlier than planned, amid ongoing concerns that its leadership was not doing enough to tackle institutional racism within the organisation. Allen had been originally due to leave in September after more than 20 years in post of the charity. So Sasha Deshmukh has been named as AI UK's interim chief executive, and he's going to lead the organisation until at least January next year, while the charity searches for a permanent successor. But now it looks as though Amnesty International UK members could be asked to vote on an emergency resolution to remove three senior leaders from their positions at the organisation's AGM meeting next month. There have been two emergency resolutions submitted by members. The first calls for the removal of the chair of the board, the co-opted leader of the board's human resources subcommittee and a board member and former vice chair at the charity. The second resolution demands a comprehensive independent review of racism and wider workplace culture and management failings at AI UK, with input from both current and former staff. These resolutions have been put forward, uh, it's said, due to the failure of key board members to address racism at the organisation over several years. And they echo earlier calls by Unite the Union and by two former trustees who both called for AI UK's leadership to step down. So this is not looking good for Amnesty, and there have been previous concerns about the culture at an international level for a number of years now. In 2018, two members of staff from different offices took their own lives, and although reviews found that the charity had not breached its duty of care, there were questions raised over workload and culture at the organisations. So the current concerns about racism also emerged over a report into the charity's culture, and this report found incidents of overt racism at its international secretariat, including senior staff using both the P-word and the N-word. This report was published on the Amnesty website in October last year, but it wasn't given to the press or publicised, so it took until last month for this to really start hitting the headlines. Uh, Rebecca, you've been looking into this issue of negative reports, negative internal reports at charities over the last week or so. What have you found about this? Right. So in relatively quick succession, we've had the NCVO report, the Amnesty one and the one at Girl Guiding, all of which have been commissioned by the organisations themselves and have found really troubling cultures of racism at these organisations. And in the case of NCVO, other forms of discrimination, too. And they've all taken slightly different approaches to publicising these results. NCBO wrote a series of blogs last year saying they'd done EDI work and saying that there were you know, some issues to address, but they didn't actually mention that there was a report. And those blogs at the time looked like an organisation being really transparent and holding itself to account. And then when we got our hands on a copy of the report, it became clear it was so much worse than that. I mean, the standout line from that in a report full of absolute shockers was that all marginalised groups experience overt oppression across all levels of the organisation. So they didn't quite bury it, but they came they came about as close as you can without picking up a spade, right? Um, and then we had Amnesty, which, as you just said, released the full report, but really quietly and sort of seemed to hope no one would notice. And that worked for a bit. With Girl Guiding, there was a bit of a gap between the report being seen internally and it being published. It was completed in the autumn last year, and then the charity approached the independent with it earlier this month. Um, So we've had all these different approaches, and it just got me thinking, like, as a journalist, my instinct is generally, 
that unpleasant truths should always be told and that they should be brought into the light where we can discuss them, we can deal with them. But obviously, aside from any kind of high-minded moral principles that might be going on there, there's a certain amount of self-interest there, right? Like, I, I want your secrets so I can publish them. So, yeah, this week I had a bit of a chat with some communications experts to see what they thought about this issue. So, from a communication standpoint, if your charity has a report that is critical about its culture, should it publish or should it try and keep it contained so as not to jeopardise the charity's work? Um, And the final piece is on our website, but the conclusion was overwhelmingly, yes, you should publish. Um, Kirsty Marins made some really interesting points about how and when you should come clean about any issues a report has found. So first up, she said, you've got to be sincere in your apology. And really interestingly, she said, don't use the word shocked, which I thought was a really good point. That You do read these, oh, we're shocked and saddened to find this. Um, and actually, if something is is embedded into the organisation, leadership can't actually be that shocked by it. They must have had an inkling that something was up. So saying you're shocked sounds at best kind of disingenuous. And at worst, like you're sort of implying it can't really have been that bad because you hadn't noticed it. Mm. So, you know, Kirsty also said that alongside this apology should come something that looks like and that is real action. You can't just mumble something about reviewing policies and practices. Like you have to be seen to be changing something and possibly even your leadership if necessary. And this might mean that you don't publish the report instantly. You may need to take time to think about what your response is going to be, what meaningful action is necessary, but you should be doing all that with a view to publishing it as soon as you can. Like I I do have some sympathy that is a tricky one. Um, Matthew Sherrington pointed out on Twitter that charities that are really upfront about it are still going to get a lot of stick for it. They're going to get this criticism. Uh, There isn't a reward for doing the right thing here. But then maybe neither should there be at some point. You know, this is about people really struggling in an organisation. You know, yes, society is to an extent you know racial bias is embedded within society we could all be doing better everyone can be doing better there are mistakes people make you don't accidentally say the p word or the n word to somebody do you know what i mean nobody doesn't know that that's something you shouldn't be doing you know at some point yeah there's there's gonna be a backlash that's kind of part of the accountability but it is still the better option to come clean and to publish than trying to bury yeah yeah um and as kirsty pointed out the clock really starts ticking as soon as staff are made aware of the document. So you need to ensure you're being very open with them about what's happening and what you're planning to do. Not least because many of them are likely to be the people who have been harmed by the charity's culture up to this point. And that's ultimately why it's so important to make these sorts of results public. Martha Awajobi, director of the consultancy JMB Consulting, told me that attempting to hide that reality and the impact it has for people of colour is deeply insulting and a deliberate attempt to avoid accountability while continuing to perpetuate harm. Martha also made the point that our sector's leaders are preoccupied with being seen to be good people. And this image of the charity sector as doing good work is already deeply rooted in paternalistic racist ideologies. Which actually brings us on to the next story. Right. So on Tuesday, MPs sitting on the House of Commons International Development Committee took evidence on racism in the foreign aid sector as part of a wider inquiry into the philosophy and the culture of aid. So they heard how the legacy of colonialism embedded in institutions such as the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank helped to keep countries in receipt of aid impoverished and prevented them from industrialising. They heard from experts such as Deegan Ali, executive director of the NGO Adesso, who told them that aid recipients do not need more aid. They need a chance to compete in an international system whose post-colonial trading relationships are unfair by design. These relationships make the aid sector complicit in the extension of a colonial system that treats countries and local organisations as second-class citizens. 
Ali described how the aid sector was complicit in this unfair system by using the example of droughts and food shortages in Malawi. She said an aid charity might be able to set up a food security project in the country with the use of aid, but it was not helping to challenge the unequal nature of deals struck with institutions such as the IMF, which might force the country to remove subsidies on products and sell off the country's food reserves. So aid alone can only really do so much without massive overall system change and can in fact be making the problem worse. An earlier session heard that senior managers and decision makers in the aid sector do not often reflect the demographics of those they work with, which is problematic. And, of course, this is how we end up with situations like the safeguarding scandal. I always find this issue around aid a really tricky one because, like, on the one hand, I completely agree with this point around the colonial roots of the aid sector, that it starts with missionaries and colonial administrators feeding people in places where the natural resources were also being extracted for profit by the same country that is sending the missionaries and the administrators. And I completely agree that wider changes to address that imbalance in the global economic system would do a hell of a lot more good. But at the same time, I still have real issues around the government's decision to cut aid funding, which we discussed a couple of weeks ago. Like, we know this government isn't going to be campaigning to level the playing field. It isn't pushing for this wider system change. So, like, slashing the aid budget and redirecting it to wider foreign affairs spending isn't doing anything to help anyone either. Um, And, I yeah, I just find that really, really knotty. And so that brings on to the final story for this week. Uh, The government has been accused of trying to avoid public scrutiny after it refused to publish the legal advice it received regarding its cuts to overseas development aid. So I think this is a cracking piece of journalism from our colleague Stephen Delahunty. Um, in March, Preet Gill, who is the Shadow International Development Minister and the MP for Birmingham Edgbaston, used a parliamentary question to ask the government whether it had received any legal advice regarding its decision to cut the overseas aid budget from 0.7% of gross national income to 0.5%. At the time, the Foreign Minister Nigel Adams said it was not possible to answer that question within the usual time period, um, so Stephen sent in an FOI. And in response to an FOI request by Third Sector, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office said it did hold the relevant information, but that the public interest favoured withholding it. How do they make that out? So they said in their, their response to Stephen that factors against disclosure include the strong public interest in protecting legal professional privilege and in government departments receiving comprehensive legal advice for the effective conduct of business, which is given in confidence and with a full appreciation of the facts. They basically say that the disclosure of legal aid could also prejudice the government's ability to conduct its business and could diminish its reliance on legal aid that has been fully considered. So essentially, if everybody knew about the legal aid, they might not follow it. Right. Seems to be that. Yeah, I'm probably passing that wrong, but that's kind of what it sounds like. So this MP, Preet Corgill was not having it either and said to Third Sector, this Conservative government has consistently sought every avenue possible to avoid public scrutiny. It has refused to release details about the legal position of its actions, the projected impact of the aid cuts or any underlying strategy that went into the decision. And made the very reasonable point that if the government is convinced it is acting within the law by ignoring the legislative commitment to 0.7%, then it should have no trouble setting out the advice. If not, then it should put an immediate stop to the cuts and bring legislation forward for Parliament to vote on them. So, yeah, I I think that wasn't washing either. And I'm sure we, we will keep seeing this development story developing and going on. Rumbling on. Yeah, absolutely. So for more on this story and for the others that we've talked about today, you can visit the Third Sector website to get some more info.
Each week we bring you a mini coronavirus care package, a good news story that we've spotted in the sector. What have we got this week? Uh, So this week we've got the interesting news that the coronavirus pandemic has sparked a rise in digital volunteering, according to new research. So this is from the latest data from the seventh monthly COVID-19 voluntary sector impact barometer. So this was something we uh, covered when it launched or a couple of months in. Um, And yeah, they asked 579 organisations across the UK questions about the impact of the pandemic on volunteering within their organisations. So this is the the project that's led by the National Council for Voluntary Organisations in partnership with Nottingham Trent and Sheffield Hallam Universities. And the results reveal increased positivity among charities and an expansion of online and digital volunteering. So the study found that 92% of respondents said they had moved services online in the past year, while the number of volunteer roles being carried out remotely increased in 39% of organisations. As a result, more than a quarter of respondents said they found it necessary to recruit volunteers with different skill sets to their usual types of volunteer. So that picture was a bit more complicated and there were some doubts about the long term uh, issues of it. But yeah, on the surface level, this is really good news. And I mean, you did a piece um, so long ago in, in the before times long in the before times and sort of looking at micro volunteering and the sort of remote volunteering opportunities that were available um so i think it's great that this sort of thing is being expanded that you know people can do this from home um and yeah hopefully this is one of those things that we'll see continue into the aftertimes much more of in the future absolutely uh, and then another quick fun one um, is that the fundraiser Matt Smith did a really good Twitter thread on the cast of Friends um, as or the, the characters in Friends if they were charity fundraisers. Nice. Yeah, it's really good fun, actually. It just goes through like uh, Monica would be on individual giving because she's very detail focused and competitive. Um, that Ross would be doing trusts and statutory funding because he's quite academic and serious. Uh, yeah, and it just it just kind of goes through it. And that's quite a bit of fun. Uh, so I'd recommend checking that out. So Matt Smith is uh, at Innovation Matt on Twitter. And yeah, I'd, I'd take a look at that if you are looking for a little bit of, of fun to liven up your Friday afternoon, as it probably is now. Ahead of the Big Friends reunion as well, yes. whenever that's coming, which yeah. I'm probably not going to watch, I think, um, because... Well, I don't know. It's. I think some things just need to be allowed to just just let go. Although I, you know, I I enjoyed Friends, but it yeah. was very much of its time. But uh, yeah, it's 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 an interesting lead into it. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I wholeheartedly agree with you that it was completely unnecessary. Why do we keep needing to revisit this nostalgia? I probably am going to go and watch it, I have to say. Maybe it's just being with six pals in an enclosed space is just what we're all really, really, (laughs) you know, needing right now. And we all need to go back and remind ourselves of how you actually do that with six friends because we're out of practice. (laughs) I feel like it's been on permanently during lockdown. Like it's just always, I mean, it's always on Channel 4 or E4. So you you flick a channel at any point, any time, day or night, and you'll hit a friend's episode at some point, I feel. Um, And it is like, yeah, there are things that do not stand the test of time that you wouldn't do now. There are some moments that's very, very funny. Like, yeah, it is great. Maybe we'll do a debrief on it. Maybe not. (laughs) Maybe. Um, We'll be back with another episode soon. Uh, So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. And our producer is Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. And we'll see you next week.